I'd like to welcome you all back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, where we delve into the conversations behind the content. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring one of the most common neuromuscular disorders in the dog, and that's myasthenia gravis. Here to guide us through the intricacies of diagnosing and managing this condition is Dr. Carrie Bailey. She's a staff neurologist at Oradell Animal Hospital in New Jersey. Dr. Bailey recently authored a self-quiz, and you all at home can find that on our website at www.cliniciansbrief.com. Good morning, Dr. Bailey. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you and have this conversation. But before we jump in, would you mind just introducing yourself to the audience? Give us a little bit about your background, how you ended up where you are now. Sure. So um, I've been at Oradell Animal Hospital my entire uh, time as a neurologist. Um, I joined the practice in 2008 after I got forwarded. Um, Prior to that, I did my residency at Cornell University. Um, I'm kind of Cornell born and bred. I did my undergrad, my vet school, and my residency there. Um, And so I came back to New Jersey. My husband is um, an oncologist, veterinary oncologist at Oradell as well. So we joined the practice after I finished my residency, and we've been here ever since. That's wonderful. We have several guests that have done that, have done mm-hmm. their, their undergrad and then, you know, yeah. their their vet school, gone back for an internship or a residency. Some have even stayed on then to teach at those facilities. So, mm-hmm. so you're in very good company. <laughs> yes. So we're going to talk today about myasthenia gravis. And as I mentioned in the intro, this is the, you know, I've heard that it's the most common neuromuscular disorder that we see in dogs. Um, it is characterized by failure of the of neuromuscular transmission, and that results in weakness and fatigue. But there's kind of two general forms of this. So could you talk to that a little bit? What's their pathophysiology? Sure. So the two main forms are congenital and acquired myasthenia gravis. Um, congenital myasthenia gravis is an inherited disorder um, that we see sometimes in Jack Russell's, um, Dachshunds, and a few other breeds. Um, thankfully, we don't see it too often um, because it can be a pretty devastating disease. Um, it's essentially a condition where the, um, the deficit is within the neuromuscular transmission. So the receptors are just not formed properly. So it's either a presynaptic, a synaptic, or a postsynaptic defect in the um, receptor itself. So they're just born that way. As opposed to that, the acquired form is an autoimmune or an immune-mediated disorder. So those dogs are, you know, typically adults when they're um, diagnosed, and they have autoantibodies that are targeted against the actual nicotinic acetylcholine receptor that's in the skeletal muscle. So um, definitely we see that more commonly. Yeah, that was absolutely going to be my next question, and you you answered it. So we see the acquired form more commonly. That is the form that I have seen a few times You know, in my career. I don't think I've ever seen the congenital form. Besides mm-hmm. age, are there other significant differences in how they would present You know, to me since I've never seen the congenital form before? Is there something special that I should be looking for? Um... Not really. Unfortunately, there's not a ton. I mean, I've, I've been a neurolog- boarded neurologist now for 15 years, and I've only seen it twice, um, the congenital form. Mm-hmm. The other I see quite commonly. Um, 
So the chief complaint is exercise intolerance and weakness. And so when that is in a very young dog, um, maybe one of those breeds that are a little bit more predisposed, like the Jack Russell, the Dachshund, it, maybe that's when your radar should go up for this condition. And like the acquired form also, they do have, and we'll talk about this after later, I'm sure, one of the hallmarks is that they do kind of um, gain some energy after resting. So it's not a constant fatigue, um, as opposed to some other neuromuscular disorders we see in young dogs. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely going to flesh that out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of keeping with this, you know, the basics, because it can be a little bit confusing. So there's the congenital form, there's the acquired form, and then the acquired form is, is further classified into like mm -hmm. focal, uh, generalized, or this acute fulminating myasthenia gravis, which I will have to say I have seen once and it was devastating. So, oh. um, but, you know, we classically think of the focal form as affecting the esophagus, and I've seen that several times. Can it affect other muscles or are there other focal areas or specific, you know, areas of the body that we see that focal form in? Yes. So it, it typically is confined to the esophagus, the pharyngeal muscles, laryngeal muscles, and occasionally the facial muscles. Um, but the biggest difference is that in the focal form, there is no appendicular weakness. So that's the main difference. And so... The so when we see appendicular involvement, then we're really thinking more of the generalized form. Yes. yes. And and how does that normally progress? Do we see it progress in a very specific way? Like, does it start focally with the esophagus and move through the rest of the body, or or is there another way that that progresses? Um, I think it varies patient to patient. Um, typically, the progression that we see with the generalized myasthenia is that it is a progression in their weakness. So okay. a lot of times it is just noted that the dog is having, you know, they used to walk around the block four times and now it's only three and a half and then it progressed to three and, oh wait, but they're better in the morning. They're better after nap time. Like that, those kind of things come up in the history a lot of the times. Um, about, 85-ish percent of dogs with the generalized myasthenia will have esophageal involvement, um, which starts first isn't always a, a specific to the disease. We've definitely seen dogs come in for regurgitation and they're diagnosed with a mega esophagus. And then lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, they're having appendicular weakness. And we've seen the flip side. So when you do have a patient who is coming into you and the owner's chief complaint is weakness, whether or not it's episodic. If, if myasthenia is on your radar, you definitely want to ask about regurgitation. And that's one of those things that owners oftentimes will confuse with vomiting. And we do too sometimes. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll have a dog come in for weakness and vomiting, and then you have to kind of probe a little bit more and, you know, make some sounds that you don't want to make in front of a client sometimes to really pick apart. Are they regurgitating or are they vomiting? And so that's um, definitely something that is part of the history. Another thing that's oftentimes part of the history, and this I have noticed a little bit later in the progression, is when those pharyngeal muscles get involved, there can be a change in their bark. So either a weakness or a lack of a bark or just a change in the pitch. 
And again, that's not necessarily something that an owner may um, present to you initially, but when you kind of probe, it's one of those things, oh yeah, you know, you're right. Um, I mean, some will come in and that is the chief complaint, but not, not all the time. So that's something sure. else we'll see. So good uh, history question to have kind of in your back pocket mm-hmm. to try mm-hmm. to flush this out a little bit more. You had you kind of said that um, sometimes we'll see the the regurgitation, and a couple weeks later we will see progressive weakness. So so is that kind of the timeline we look at with the this acquired form? Is it generally weeks, or could it be months, as opposed to that really acute form, which we're going to talk about next? It could be any of these above, any of the above. You know, sometimes just depending on the severity and. Um, that's what's kind of one of the extra difficult things about this disorder is that they do, you know, you can have a myasthenic who had three days of weakness, you put them on treatment and they never look back. And then you can have another one who, you know, just doesn't respond at all. Like it's such a variable disease and it's just, I think because of the immune response, that's what triggers it. And so Mm -hmm. the progression can be very different. Um, I would say in general, for generalized myasthenia, we're looking at weeks of of a history. Um, As long as, and that's the thing too, as long as, um, obviously one of the big sequelas to omega esophagus is aspiration pneumonia. So as long as we're not dealing with that, these aren't always an emergent case. You know, they can be, of course, but they're not always if that isn't part of the picture. Sure. So, but those fulminating cases, mm-hmm. those ones are emergent. So could you talk a little yeah. bit about how those present and, and what we can do, if anything, you know, to help those animals? So that's the really devastating one. And that can be hours to days. Um, you know, I literally like saw one just go before my eyes when I was a resident. Um, She came in with weakness overnight, presented to us. You know, I remember examining her and then, you know, an hour later when my chief came in, I examined her with him and she was worse than she was the hour before. Um, So those can really present very rapidly. And it's the just profound appendicular weakness. So these dogs don't get better with rest. They are just down. And they oftentimes, they almost, they always have, I shouldn't say often, they always have some pharyngeal, laryngeal um, dis, um, dysfunction. And so they will oftentimes be drooling. They're having difficulty swallowing. They've aspirated by the time they even come through the door. Um, these are devastating. Ironically, the first myasthenic I had was a fulminating um, oh. on a ventilator. Um, so it's amazing. I'm still doing this. Um, but she, uh, the ventilator is the only way to go because their intercostal muscles fatigue, their diaphragm fatigues. Um, but even with the ventilator and, you know, every bell and whistle you can provide them with, it's almost uniformly fatal. Yeah, that was my first case was, I think just a matter of a couple days and it was really difficult at the beginning because, you know, she was drooling, she was having regurgitation and it, and then we took an x-ray and she had a big old rock in her stomach, um, mm. which I think she probably ate because she wasn't feeling well, not because, you know, not causing the problem. Right. Um, and so, and so we were, you know, trying to manage that and she needed surgery and she had the mega esophagus yeah. and 
my owners elected just to go ahead and humanely euthanize, which I think was the right choice. But I'll yeah. always remember that case. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, also, I know that there is a paraneoplastic form of myasthenia gravis, um, and we mm-hmm. see that in both dogs and cats. Are there particular tumors that are known to, you know, be triggers for that that form of myasthenia gravis? There are. There's a few. Um, the most common is the thymoma. So cranial mediastinal masses um, have been associated with myasthenia, interestingly, in the dog, the cat, and the human. Um, so basically the thymoma cells present antigen or express antigens, excuse me, that mimic the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Um, and so when the body tries to, when the immune system tries to attack the tumor cells, unfortunately, sometimes it can go awry and start to attack the, um, acetylcholine receptor. And so that's where that disease comes along. Um, other cancers that have been associated with myasthenia are osteosarcoma, quite rarely, um, biliary carcinoma, anal sac carcinoma, and cutaneous lymphoma. So um, a lot of times it's the reverse. You know, I I have to say I haven't had cases transferred to me from Onco, but I have Mm -hmm. sent them cases. So I've had a myasthenic who then I rectal and lo and behold, find an anal sac tumor. So sure. um, it just, again, goes to your thorough physical exam and kind of some probing. Mm-hmm. There's also, I was, another thing that I learned from your quiz, which I didn't realize, is that there is a link between methimazole and myasthenia gravis in cats. Um, so I guess I'll add that to another thing with methimazole besides the facial pruritus and all the other adverse events we can see. Can you tell us a little bit about that mechanism of action? Um, not a whole lot is known. It's just in a drug-acquired, um, drug-induced form. Um, and mm-hmm. thankfully, it's not common at all. Um, it's only been reported um, rarely over the last 10, 12 years or so. But just something to think about. Keep it on the list. <laughs> exactly, that long list. <laughs> so there. what are the characteristic clinical signs that we're looking for when we have neuroma- neuromuscular weakness? Um, I personally, I'll be very honest, I can have a really hard time differentiating between weakness and ataxia or lameness, especially, you know, when I have an animal come in that's not really willing to move around the exam room, and I'm going on what the owner is describing from home. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, one of the hardest parts of of our job is to figure out what they look like in front of us, because sometimes what they're doing in the hospital is different than what they're doing at home. Um, I sort of have like a, 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 um, kind of like a pathway that I follow in my brain as far as what the, to do when I have a dog who's walking in front of me. And I literally do this every single patient. The first thing I say is, are you ataxic or not? And if you're ataxic, okay, great. Now I have to figure out what kind of ataxia. So are they, you know, do they have a long strided loping gait? Are they crossing over? You know, then it's probably a spinal ataxia. Are they super spastic, hypermetric, falling all over, but popping back up with that strength? Those guys are usually cerebellar. Um, Are they walking around looking like they're really drunk, stumbling, veering? Those guys are usually vestibular. Um, So kind of put that in those categories. And then going down the the tree, 
um, that I sort of have in my brain and say, okay, well, you're not ataxic. Now is your gait normal? Because plenty of my patients do have normal gaits. Or are you weak or are you lame? And weakness and lameness and orthopedic lameness all blur together sometimes for sure. Um, the classic weak dog um, is going to walk with their forelimbs sort of camped under. They may bunny hop. Um, it's easier, the way I always think about it, it's easier to hold your weight up on two legs than it is on one leg. And so they kind of keep their legs together as they walk. Um, camping them under, keeping them all under their body, again, keeps their, you know, supporting them a little bit better. They typically have a very short choppy gait. They sit often, they may lay down, lie down often. Um, all of those things are characteristics of weakness, but they can also be characteristics of an orthopedic lameness or a, poly, um, a polyarthropathy or something along those lines. I mean, the class, you know, an immune-mediated polyarthropathy always, you know, elephant on a ball, right? They kind of keep all their feet tucked underneath them. And that's the same thing as a, a weak dog. So sometimes the gait alone can't tell you. I think the one thing about myasthenia that might make you say, hmm, I think this is myasthenia and not bilateral cruciate tears is that they may sit, kind of pant a little bit and then pop up and walk a little bit more normally and then get worse. If you think about those cruciate dogs, they're not going to walk like that. Um, sure. But they don't all do that for you. So it, once you evaluate the gait, you really need to do a thorough neuro exam and a thorough ortho exam a lot of the times too. What are some other neuromuscular disorders uh, that can show clinical signs similar to myasthenia gravis? Um, so basically any neuromuscular disorder that causes weakness can. Um, the one that we always lump together with myasthenia being similar is botulism. Botulism. Um, and that's, yeah, that's just because, so when we pick apart neuromuscular disease, it can either be a disorder that affects the nerve, a disorder that affects the muscle, or a disorder that affects the neuromuscular junction where those two come together. And botulism is kind of a classic one that the classic other neuromuscular junction disorder like myasthenia. But certainly polyradicular neuritis, which is also known as Kuhnhaun paralysis, can absolutely look like this. Tick paralysis can look like this. Um, and really any other infectious neuropathy or myopathy, polymyositis, those kinds of things can all mimic myasthenia gravis. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had a case of tick paralysis either since probably since school. You know, I practice out in Vegas now. And so we're kind of lucky in this little bowl here where we don't have a mm. lot of, of ectoparasites. Um, so, but, but I do well, remember that. <laughs> that's a fun one. You're a real hero for just plucking. It's really amazing. I had a dog, I, I'll never forget. Yeah, there's, they're fun. I had this dog that came in completely para, you know, tetraplegic mm -hmm. and couldn't even hold its head up. And it was transferred to us from another facility. And I was like, you know, let's just really, it was like a messed up Shih Tzu. And I really, really combed it and I found it and I pulled it off. And the first thing this dog did was try to bite us. <laughs> oh my like, God. That's the thanks we get. <laughs> so it was rewarding and not rewarding at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. No, mm -hmm. I have absolutely heard that that disease just makes you feel like a hero. <laughs> so. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So besides doing a thorough search for ticks, are there other mm -hmm. tests that we need to be prioritizing in order to kind of, you know, rule in or out some of those other common differentials for, for neuromuscular weakness? 
Um, so, I mean, just typically a, a complete profile, you know, a CBC and a chemistry profile, looking at a CK, a lot of our in-house machines don't have a CK or create, you know, so we want to make sure that we're checking the muscle enzymes, um, because those should be normal with myasthenia gravis, whereas they would be extremely elevated with something like a polymyositis, um, tick-borne diseases, you know, so we'll oftentimes do, um, 40x testing or whatever your hospital calls it. Um, and then um, sometimes we'll need to do screening for neospora, um, toxoplasma, things like that. Okay. Are you on track to hit your CE goals? Clinician's Brief has more than 60 hours of practical, race-approved CE, perfect for catching you up and keeping you up on requirements. Whether you prefer to read, watch, or listen, Clinician's Brief CE is on demand and always affordable. Start earning CE today at cliniciansbrief.com CE. test, the Tensilon test, and this is one that I've never, I've never done personally, I've never administered. Um, but there, you know, I know this test has some limitations. Um, and, you know, there, there, it's a nice way to help differentiate myasthenia gravis. So could you walk us through like how to do the test? And then we'll talk about why we don't do it a lot. <laughs> um, sure. So it's, um, it's known as an, an edrophonium challenge test. And essentially what's done is you administer edrophonium, which is um, an ultra short acting acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So just to kind of go back a little bit to that school, right? So the neuromuscular junction, I always kind of equate it to baseball. I'm a baseball mom, so that's what I do. Um, so you have the nerves throwing out your signal. So lots of balls are being thrown out. There are the catchers getting ready to catch the muscle, excuse me, catch the, the balls, the neurotransmitter, which are on the muscles. And then, you know, there's this whole safety factor where tons and tons of balls are being thrown so that the catchers who are there can do their job. And then the acetylcholinesterase comes in and sweeps away all of the excess balls. And so what we do with the uh, Tensilon is that prevents the sweeper. So it prevents the cleanup of the extra acetylcholine from getting cleaned up. So therefore, if you have a few catchers who weren't paying attention and who weren't doing their job, they have another second chance to catch it or a third chance. So there's more available. And so that's what the Tensilon does. And so essentially you put an IV catheter in, um, you, I always pre-treat with atropine to kind of prevent any of the, the, the side effects, the, colon, um, the cholinergic crisis that can sometimes occur rarely. Um, we go ahead and pre-treat them and then you administer the Tensilon after you fatigue the animal. So it's super important. You want to walk them around, get them to the point where they're almost non-ambulatory, and then you go ahead and administer it. And if they are going to respond, they literally get up and walk. And some of these dogs walk almost 100% normally. And that one's easy. That's the slam dunk. You're like, boom, we're done. And then sure enough, five minutes later, they're down again. And so you say, okay, with pretty good confidence, this dog is a myasthenic. 
the biggest limitation is it's an extremely subjective test and you don't always get that lucky and have that response. So there's tons of false positives. There's tons of false negatives. So about half of dogs who truly have myasthenia will not respond to the ultra short acting. Um, and so, and then about some, and then some percentage of dogs who don't have myasthenia will respond. So essentially, you know, they could have another neuromuscular disorder, but you're sort of just giving them a little boost of acetylcholine. So they do get up and walk. Um, so that is the biggest limitation with the test is interpreting it and knowing truly, you know, is that real or not? And my next question was about some side effects and how we could counteract them. And so you talked a little bit about the atropine, but what are those things that we're seeing, you know, with the. Sure. So the biggest thing is that you're, you're overstimulating the muscarinic acetylcholine receptor. Mm -hmm. And so that leads to like your slud signs. So salivation, lacrimation, urination. Um, You'll also get uh, bronchoconstriction and bradycardia occasionally. Um, the only time I've seen those are in the fulminating dogs, though. Like the run of the mill, um, I personally haven't had that. I always do the test right near CCU. I have um, endotracheal tubes out just in case. Like I ward off all the evil demons before I start it. Um, and I always pretreat with atropine because atropine is an anti-muscarinergic um, agent. So it doesn't have any effect on the actual nicotinic um, acetylcholine receptor. So it's, it works well in that it prevents the signs, but doesn't screw up your test. But doesn't mess up your test. Good. Mm-mm. Good. So the edrophonium that you use for this test, it's, I don't believe it's available in the U S correct. So is it, yeah. but it's available in other countries. I was having, I was trying to look this up and I have not mm-hmm. really found any sources. So it's been around since the 30s, the 1930s, and that's what they used in people to diagnose myasthenia. And there's just been so many false positives that the FDA pulled it. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know how to get it. Yep. So that was, yep, absolutely one of the things that I've that I've heard yeah. that you just can't get it. We don't know if it's coming back or so. Mm-mm. So. In lieu of that test, which we probably wouldn't be able to do, what mm-hmm. is kind of the current gold standard for diagnosing the acquired myasthenia gravis? So, you know, even when we did the Tensilon test, the gold standard is still going to be the um, demonstrating a circulating acetylcholine receptor antibodies. Um, so it's an ELISA test um, that we perform. It's a, you know, simple blood test. Um, sent out to the comparative neuromuscular lab, um, in California. And it demonstrates a, you know, an objective quality, quantitative, excuse me, and specific titer. So titer is greater than 0.6 nanomoles per liter is, is diagnostic for a dog. And then 0.3 is di- greater than that is diagnostic for a cat. So, um, it's a very important test to do because it, not only diagnoses it, but allows you to follow them treatment-wise as well. Um, so the dogs with the higher titers tend not to do as well um, as the dogs with lower ones. Those with just um, focal myasthenia, they oftentimes have lower ones as well. Um, but we usually like to follow them until they're negative. So we call them, like, put them in a clinical remission if they're doing well clinically, and then a zero serological remission if they have um, 
gone down below the 0.6 in dogs and 0.3 in cats. How long does that test generally take to get those antibodies back? Um, so it's at um, uh, it's at the neuro- competitive neuromuscular lab in San Diego. They're the lab that does it. They usually take, they say five to seven days. I feel like they're usually a little shorter. Um, That's good. Yes, yes. Um, And, you know, they're working days. So, of course, there's some Mm -hmm. holidays and whatnot. Um, But the little, if you, I recommend sending it directly to them. If you send it to your lab, who then sends it to them, um, it'll get there. It'll get, you'll get your result. But I find in our hospital anyway, it usually adds like two to potentially three days to do that. So I, we send them directly to the lab in California. That's a really oh, good tip. <laughs> serum, just serum. That's all they need. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then what about the congenital form of myasthenia gravis? How are we diagnosing that? Um, so the patients that I have diagnosed have been just solely on clinical signs, signalment, that type of thing in response to therapy. Um, but the titer is not going to be um, useful because there is no autoimmune resp- you know, mm-hmm. pathophysiology going on here. Um, so technically, the gold standard is to get a mu- muscle biopsy and actually identify that there are um, defective um, receptors. And again, that muscle biopsy would go to the comparative neuromuscular lab in California. Um, and ideally, the muscle biopsy, muscle that you would choose is actually an intercostal muscle, um, which is not something that we routinely do, but that's actually where the highest concentration of these receptors are. And so that's the muscle uh, that is, is ideal for this, this particular case. That is really interesting. I never would have known that. <laughs> I, so <laughs> Yeah, a little weird trick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Let's move on to treatment. Um, so how are we treating both both forms, either the acquired form or the congenital form? Um, so I kind of always think of it as three different aspects. One is the anticholinesterase therapy. So same idea as the Tensilon, but a longer acting form. Um, and then there's immunomodulatory therapy and then supportive care. So those are all the three sort of arms of therapy. And um, some patients need all three, some patients don't. So you kind of have to tailor it. Um, The mainstay, of course, is the anticholinesterase therapy. So using drugs that, again, will prevent that cleanup enzyme, the acetylcholinesterase, from really working and allowing more acetylcholine to be present um, is the mainstay therapy. So the most common one that we use is pyridostigmine bromide or mestinon. Um, so that's the, the main drug that we will use. Um, and then um, that is an oral drug, uh, which can either be given orally, or if you have to place a feeding tube in the patient, it can go via that. There is an IV form of neostigmine um, that is used in the fulminating cases or in, in the hospital setting sometimes as well. Just jumping off that, um, when you do have to place, we're going to talk about supportive care and antibiotics, and we'll talk about immunomodulators, but I just had a quick question because I saw a Facebook post the other day where, where people were um, you know, getting advice. If you do have to place a feeding tube in an animal that has esophageal disease, 
um, my understanding is we shouldn't be placing that like uh, an esophageal feeding tube. We should, we should do no. a peg tube. Yes. And I, um, I personally like surgically placed gastrotomy tubes. I just mm-hmm. don't gastrotomy tubes. Um, peg tubes are, are okay in small patients, but they have okay. to be placed by someone who's comfortable doing them, who does it often because it's a tricky procedure. Um, and any, anyone over our, I think our hospital is like anyone over 20 pounds, they don't like to place them and they place them surgically, um, is, you know, a little bit more advisable, but absolutely has to go in the stomach. Yep. Not in the esophagus. Good. I wanted mm-hmm. to just verify that I was on the right track there. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Yeah. So the, um, you know, when we're using those acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that we're using for both the acquired and the congenital forms, because like you said, we're just, you know, flooding the system. Um, Mm -hmm. I would assume that those immunomodulators are not going to be much utilized in the congenital forms. Is that correct? Since, since this is not an immune problem. Yes, correct. We just use the, um, the mestinon type drugs for those guys. Okay. And then supportive care is obviously going to be tailored to the patient. So that could be our congenital or our, our acquired. One of the mm-hmm. big things that we will sometimes see is, is, as you said earlier in the episode, you know, with that mega esophagus, we oftentimes will get aspiration pneumonia. Sometimes these yeah. animals require antibiotics. Um, I didn't realize, but there are some antibiotics that can worsen the clinical signs of myasthenia gravis. So could you let us know which ones we need to be cautious of? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's tough because sometimes these are ones that we reach for, for pneumonia. The most common ones um, are aminoglycosides, ampicillin. And I feel like that's one that's commonly reached for, Mm -hmm. for um, treating pneumonia, um, ciprofloxacin, enrofloxacin, and imipenem. Um, so some of the big guns that we may not routinely use, but can definitely be on the shelf in the hospital. So you want to try avoiding them because they have an adverse effect actually on the neuromuscular junction. Is there a kind of good first line antibiotic that you reach for when you have a case? Typically, um, we use unison and vitrol on our uh, pneumonia dogs. And are there any other medications, you know, um, besides antibiotics, any other classes of medications that I, we should be aware of? Um, so there are, so, I mean, we don't use antipsychotics too often in our patients, but the phenothiazines, um, which compazine is, Mm -hmm. is under that category. Um, those can sometimes interfere with neuromuscular transmission and some of the antiarrhythmics. So you'd have to be a little bit careful with things like sodalol in these patients as well. Okay. And then, honestly, the bigger drug also that we don't want to use um, are corticosteroids. So while they don't truly have an impact on the neuromuscular junction the way some of those antibiotics do, they're definitely contraindicated in the patient with aspiration pneumonia. And they can, you know, cause um, just neuromuscular weakness in general, muscle atrophy, that type of thing. So we try to avoid corticosteroids in our myasthenic patients. And they absolutely so, interfere with the testing yeah. as well. And corticosteroids are kind of a classic, uh, you know, medication class that you think of when you think of immunomodulatory medications. Yeah. So what immunomodulatory medications are you using if you decide that that's necessary with one of your myasthenia cases? Um, and what are your criteria for, for when to add in those types of, of medicines? 
So the top three that we tend to use um, are mycophenolate, um, cyclosporin, and azathioprine. And I would say in that order is how I use them. Um, the criteria vary from neurologist to neurologist. I think I'm one of, I'm more aggressive in using them. Um, any dog that has a mega esophagus, I tend to reach for them. Um, the run of the mill, you know, somewhat stable, um, acquired myasthenic who just is weak and had, does not have a, a mega esophagus. I might try not using it. Um, but in general, I do, I do use them when they have a mega esophagus once the aspiration ammonia is controlled. Okay. And then finally, how, you know, how long are we treating these animals? Do we have animals, do, do they recover? Do they go into remission? You said we're tracking to see that, you know, um, that antibody level come down. So do the majority of patients need lifelong therapy? So the natural course of the disease is to go into a spontaneous remission. And most times when that happens, it happens between six and seven months. The tricky part is, is to get them to that point. So again, because about 80, 85% have mega esophagus, and then well over half of those will develop um, aspiration pneumonia. If we can kind of get them over that hump, there is a decent chance that they can go into a spontaneous remission. Um, the spontaneous remission doesn't seem to be as common in dogs with just focal myasthenia gravis. I feel like the ones with the focal who just have esophageal involvement, they tend to be lifers um, on medications. But hopefully we can get them over and avoid the um, aspiration pneumonia with things like feeding tubes and feeding them upright and changing your nursing care of the patient. It takes a very dedicated owner to have a myasthenic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just having those, you know, types of, of averages and being able to, you know, give the, the client reasonable expectations, you know, about how this disease is going to progress and that, you know, it might be a real hurdle, but the silver lining is if we can get through, you know, that, that nine months that we might be mm -hmm. okay. So that gives a little hope, I think. I agree. Yes, I agree. Well, that was all my questions about myasthenia. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. So <laughs> hopefully our audience did as well. But before I let you go, we have a little game that we play with our guests at the end of our podcast. It's really easy. It's just some would you rather <laughs> questions. It's meant to be for fun. Would you like to play? Sure. Oh, good. Good. Okay. So first one. Would you rather perform a complete neurologic exam on an alligator or on a lion? Oh, a lion, hands down. Oh, really? Cool. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. I, that would be my dream would be to, um, to do it on a big cat for sure. No, no, no hesitation there. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, I kind of got this one because I, I stalked your hospital's webpage. <laughs> and so would you rather star in a reality TV series about, about veterinary neurology, or would you rather be a guest on one of those like baking shows? <laughs> um, baking for sure. Yeah. I think it, it would said be a lot that of you fun. liked baking. Yeah. I love, I love baking and, um, 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think it would be super fun. My daughter and I love to bake together. And I think we would we would be a good team on one of those shows. <laughs> Excellent. If you had to pick one, would you rather practice without phenobarbital or without prednisone? Oh, man, you're taking off both my arms. Um, pheno, pheno. Yeah, I, I don't All think right. I could work. I really don't think I could work without prednisone. Um, and pheno, another podcast, I know, but um, pheno is not my first choice of anticonvulsants. All right. That's um, really interesting. <laughs> oh, prednisone, I couldn't work. <laughs> I'd have to retire. All right. Next one. This one might be hard too. I don't know. Would you rather see nothing but surgical cases or would you rather see nothing but medical cases for the rest of your career? Probably medical. Medical. Okay. Yeah. All right. I like the client. I feel like there's more client interaction, which I do enjoy. So oh, that's wonderful. Medical. I love client, you know, I love client mm -hmm. interaction too. It's one thing that really gives my job a lot of meaning and purpose. So, all right, final question, this one, and you're going to, this is a Cerberus, the three-headed dog question, because you're a neurologist. I ask all my neurology guests, three brains. So we have to know. <laughs> so if you were going to localize a lesion to the trigeminal nerve on the central head of Cerberus, how would you denote that in the medical record? Would it, would it be like cranial nerve 17 or would it be cranial nerve 5-2? Hmm. Yeah, I think I would do like 5A, 5B, because he would do B, B, right? it would be the middle yeah, head. Yeah, A, B, and C. Yeah, probably 5B, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Roman numeral 5B. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, that's absolutely. why I was like, Roman numeral 5 and then like yeah. little eyes, you know, for 1, that 2, could and be 3. I don't know. I think that there's a lot, I think that there's a lot of right answers to this question, so. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that was all that was all my fun questions all my myasthenia questions thank you again for joining us we really hope you had a nice time today yes thank you for having me I've, usually myasthenia is not very fun but this this was <laughs> thank you all for listening to today's episode of clinicians brief the podcast if you enjoyed this episode you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts including a video version that we have on youtube while you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Or if you'd like, drop us a line at podcasts at vetmedics.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a VetMedics production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson. <laughs>